The Middle East. Exotic, spiritual, deserts, camels, sunshine, yeah? How about weapons? Do you know how much money the Middle East spent on weapons last year? $186 billion. Yep, that was billion with a big fat B. Now, before you lock the doors and hide under the tables, keep in mind that defense spending in the region has actually been falling over the last few years. Is the region becoming less militarized then? And who are the biggest military spenders and why? Hello guys, I'm Sami Zaydan and welcome to the Essential Middle East podcast. Let's get straight into it then with our guest. Hello, I'm David DeRoche. I'm joining you today from Bethesda, Maryland, and I'm an associate professor at the Near East South Asia Center for Strategic Studies at the National Defense University in Washington. Good to have you with us, David. Before we get rolling, let me give everyone an idea about the amount of money we're talking about. Total global military expenditures for the first time exceeded $2 trillion last year, an increase of 0.7% from the year before. The biggest spenders were the United States, China, India, the UK, Russia, France. That number is according to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, or SIPRI, for military expenditure reports for 2021. And of course, we're talking globally there. But let's talk a little bit about the Middle East then. And Saudi Arabia comes out on the top as the biggest Arab spender with $55 billion, although its spending did drop since last year. It's the sixth largest spender in the world now. Iran comes in second with 24.6 billion, Israel at third with 24.3 billion. Qatar spent 11.6 billion, then you have Kuwait and Oman, who each spent something like nine and almost six billion. So, David, as I mentioned, the International Institute for Strategic Studies, it says defense spending in the MENA region fell in 2021 for the fourth consecutive year. What does that mean? Is the region demilitarizing or is this just a temporary trend? It's just a temporary trend. I've argued for years that looking at money is difficult to draw conclusions from it because it's a false indicator when of destabilization or it's a false indicator of conflict. Arguably, when the UAE buys a THAAD missile defense system for $3 billion, that is not as destabilizing as, say, $100 million worth of anti-tank missiles exported to Yemen by Iran, but it shows up as a massively increased thing. I think what that drop reflects is the completion of the Saudi F-15 modernization case and the completion of the Saudi Patriot missile modernization case. Those were very expensive, very long-term projects, <laughs> which I worked on when I was in the Pentagon, so we started it uh, over a decade ago and they're coming to an end now. So I think that's why you see the drop. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the Middle East is demilitarizing. It means that the metrics that we can actually see and observe, the publicly reported U.S. arms sales, as compared to the not reported Chinese arms sales, have come to their end. That's a good point. Is part of this falling oil prices since 2014 and then the COVID pandemic forcing countries to tighten the belt? I think that there's an element of that. I think that particularly when you look at naval expenditures, 
when these countries are flush, they look across the entire spectrum, Army, Navy, Air Force, and they modernize all of it. But when oil prices fell, usually the first thing to get thrown overboard is the Navy. So, you know, people look at that and say, well, we don't really have active military naval threat. Now, if the budgets, if the military budgets have been falling, whether it's because of COVID and oil prices or because they've completed some big projects, what does that mean for the idea of an arms race? Is there an arms race going on in the MENA region? There is an arms race in the MENA region. Who's involved? Well, there are actually, I would argue that there are three, possibly four arms races. So the first arms race is the one that people used to talk about 20 years ago. The Arab-Israeli. Right. So that is pretty much resolved. It's now U.S. law that Israel has to have a qualitative military edge in U.S. exports. So if an Arab country were to significantly increase its capabilities, the United States is theoretically obligated to plus up Israel to remain ahead. So that's the first arms race. People have become sort of resigned to that. The second arms race is between Iran and all the other countries in the region. And this is an unusual arms race because it's not being conducted on a like-for-like basis. It's not tanks versus tanks or number of airplanes versus airplanes. It's asymmetric. So what you have is the GCC states buying advanced fighter weapons and missile defense systems. And you have Iran deploying proxy forces and building ballistic missiles and drones. So that's the second arms race. And then the third arms race is among the uh, Arab states themselves. You know, you look at things like uh, Qatar buying an amazing amount of aircraft from three different countries, which would challenge the logistical and uh, manpower constraints of a much larger country. And, uh, you know, a lot of analysts have looked at this and said, you know, is this being driven by military requirements or issues of prestige via the Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates? What does that mean in terms of actual conflict? Are we seeing conflict go up or down, given all these trends that you're mentioning? When you look at the three arms races, they all have different characteristics. And if you look at classic like arms control literature, the first arm race, Israel-Arabs, is actually stable because it's based on like capabilities with like capabilities. It's measurable and predictable. The third arms race, the inter-Arab arms race, is also pretty stable because it's really based on, again, like versus like capabilities. And it's people with a common culture, common means of communication. So the potential for miscommunication and accidental conflict just isn't there. The second arms race, Iran versus the Arab states and Israel, I suppose, is the one that is of greater concern because it's an asymmetric conflict. What you have are Israel and the Arab states building conventional capabilities, fighters, tanks, against a country that is deploying long-range ballistic missile strikes that it often says is not us, that is uh, building proxy militias, and that is building a nuclear capability. So that asymmetric one where Iran often refuses to, the attacks on Cape Quraysh, Iran still says, oh no, those were launched from Yemen, in spite of the fact that, you know, while it was in flight, So that means that there's a huge potential for miscommunication, for accidental escalation. So it's the second arms race that's the most unstable. Right. And on that point, I'm glad you mentioned missiles because there have been reports by several different media outlets that Saudi Arabia has a program with China to domestically produce missiles in the kingdom. 
Is there a missile race going on between Saudi Arabia and Iran? We should mention that, of course, Saudi Arabia, I don't think they've ever officially confirmed that, but that's what's been heavily reported. Yeah, there is a missile race, but it's a race at which uh, Iran has already run around the track six or seven times and publicly, you know, raised their flag and pumped it, and which Saudi Arabia is just settling into the blocks. So in the last century, Saudi Arabia bought silkworm Chinese anti-ship missiles because the West refused to sell it to them. And what we've seen over the years that Iran has built a formidable arsenal. And it's not so much that the missiles are good, although they are getting pretty good, but mostly that there's so many of them. So they've built a huge arsenal. The workhorse of them is a reverse engineered, perfected, improved version of the Scud missile that was used by Soviet Union, China, North Korea. And Saudi Arabia, on the other hand, what we're seeing are just preliminary estimates of things like they're testing uh, rocket motors. We haven't seen a fully formed indigenously produced missile. One party's far ahead. What's the chances that this could end up at some point from a missile race to a nuclear arms race? Is that something that people should be worried about? In the abstract, I suppose, yes. But as a practical policy matter, no. I mean, the missile proliferation and the nuclear issue really are two separate things. And even if Iran builds a nuclear warhead, it will be a long time before they build it small enough to be deployed on the kind of missiles that they're firing in Saudi Arabia. Iran has really only launched one or two satellite delivery missiles, which could be used you know, to carry the kind of warhead we think they're capable of building. There's not a whole lot of those. Where it becomes a concern is when they build small warheads that can go on things like the Zulfagar, these improved Scud missiles that Iran is producing in mass. I think when we get to that point, when that happens, I think what's more likely, and I've been toying with writing a paper on this, is that we'll do what we did with Europe during the Cold War to prevent having you know, the Italians and the Germans and the Belgians developing nuclear weapons. We'll have a cooperative program with the United States and with our partners there where you have joint control over nuclear warheads so that you'll have a nuclear capability, but it will be under the U.S. umbrella in order to prevent the possibility for accidents and miscalculation that would come from an independent Saudi and Emirati and Qatari nuclear program. So hang on, are you saying that eventually nuclear weapons will be stationed in some of the Gulf Arab countries? Well, looking ahead, okay, so I'm speaking now as a futurist, not as a current military analyst. Right, we understand. We're not talking tomorrow, but this is kind of where you see the trend eventually going. Yeah, dude, I mean, I want to be straight up. I don't want to be Weasley, but I'm speaking in terms of gigantic trends, like eventually we'll all be in flying cars. I think that if Iran becomes nuclear, when you look at classical nuclear theory, like Herman Kahn and all this, the problems with nuclear weapons come not from, if you have certainty and communications and regularity among nuclear powers, it's actually more stable than if you just have you know, a normal conventional arms race. But if you get things like hotlines and procedures, but the risk is if you have multiple countries proliferating with nuclear weapons, and maybe some weapons are not as good as others, some might blow up accidentally, countries don't talk to each other, or they don't have procedures for dealing with each other. So instead of having multiple nuclear powers in the Arabian Peninsula and in Iran, it's more stable if you'd have those would-be nuclear powers brought together under one guidance, which really only the United States has the ability to do that. And that is what we did with Greece, Turkey, Italy, Netherlands, Belgium, Germany. 
in the Cold War. So, so looking at it in a futuristic terms, I think that's what my grandchildren will see. What's the bottom line here? Are we going to see Saudi Arabia and Iran eventually clash at some point? Is this going to turn from a proxy war to a more direct war? Yeah. Well, I'd argue they are clashing right now. It's just that Saudi Arabia is exercising considerable restraint. And Iran realizes that there's a level of activity that they can conduct, that they can operate pretty much without fear of any interdiction. If they step above that line, if they overtly, you know, fire on a U.S. Navy ship or something, then there'll be an issue. But they've attacked Jeddah. They've attacked the heart of Saudi Arabia's economic system at Abqaiq and Horace, and they haven't seen a kinetic response. There has been a significant cyber response, but they haven't seen a kinetic response. So Saudi Arabia feels vulnerable, naked, and betrayed. And in those circumstances, they're likely to do what Israel has done, which is to say, we need to take matters into our own hands. We can't trust anybody else. Right. What's your forecast for the coming year? We've been talking about military spending declining in the last few years. Well, as I said, I think we had an artificial bump for the couple of big programs, predominantly the Saudi F-15 program. And we always have to caveat this with, you get good data about US spending and you get good data about Westerners. We don't see the Chinese and the uh, Russian figures. We have to estimate those. So for all we know, the spending may already be at a much higher level than what we think. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. There could be exports of weapons to Iran that we don't know about or Iranian exports. You know, I mean, we've seen the Saudis and the Emiratis buy Chinese drones. We've seen Chinese artillery used by the Emiratis and the Saudis. They don't publicize that to us. So we know what we know, but there is significant measurement bias in weapons sales. And the things that the Western democracies do is pretty much well known to everybody. And the things that China and Russia do is not well known to everybody. So there's a great possibility for a surprise there. But to answer your specific question, I think that what we're likely to see in the next year is first off, the Biden visits to the Middle East usually comes with what we call deliverables in government. I think that the big thing we're likely to see among partners of the U.S. is all those countries that have bought Patriot missiles in the 2000s, you know, from 1989 forward, those systems are going to be upgraded. There's now a new radar that the United States has produced that's far superior to the old Ronald Reagan administration Patriot radar, and they're pretty expensive. A lot of these countries are going to have to restock their missiles. Spending is going to go up then. It's going to go way up. And the other thing that I haven't mentioned yet is the Ukraine war. Whenever there's a new war, there's a new hot weapon system that emerges, and there are people reassess their defense infrastructure. They look at vulnerabilities. And what's interesting about the Ukraine war is that you've got kind of like the hot, sexy, this will solve it all weapon system, which is, you know, things like the Bayraktar drone that Turkey makes. So countries, I think, will be investing heavily in drone and anti-drone capabilities. But we're also seeing now in this phase of the war, the requirement to have a lot of artillery and a lot of artillery ammunition. Having said all of that, where does that leave what was the traditional arms race in the region for decades, the one between Arab states and Israel? Yeah, good question. So it's really interesting. The Israeli capabilities have increasingly focused not on dealing with Arab states, which are not really viewed as a security threat to Israel. They're dealing with non-conventional threats. Not only that, but we've even got, when you talk about that, the Israeli defense minister spoke in March about developing now even a special security arrangement with some of the Arab states. I mean, a sign of how much things have changed, right? Well, yes. And what it really shows is 
the emerging nature of the Iranian threat. This wouldn't have been done in isolation. Absent the Iranian threat, even in these states, I think there wouldn't be this rapprochement with Israel. Or it's not a rapprochement, it's a rapprochement with Israel. So yeah, I think that what we're likely to see is it won't be a generalized defense cooperation, but it will be in some things that are seen as mutual benefits. Israel's primary concern right now is of disorder, you know, a generalized uprisings in the West Bank, in Gaza, you know, Arab populated areas of Israel proper. And then it's of rockets and missiles being fired over the border from Gaza, from Lebanon, possibly from Syria, destabilizing and striking infrastructure within Israel. So the level of missile threat that Israel faces is of a greater number, but lower technology than what, for example, you know, Abu Dhabi faces from Yemen. Right. What about looking at it from the Arab perspective as well? Because let's not forget, it is actually Israel that occupies Arab territories. How worried are they about the arms race anymore between Arab countries and Israel? You talk about the 50s, 60s, 70s. That was the big concern for Arab states. It doesn't seem like that is the case anymore. Well, that and overthrowing the government at home. I mean, bear in mind, Hafez al-Assad came to power, you know, when the rest of the Syrian army was fighting the Israelis. And, you know, so he, he they just overthrew the government. Saw his chance and took it. Yeah, exactly. So in the 60s, 70s, 80s, we measured military power in terms of fighter aircraft and tanks. And it was, you know, who's got more fighter aircraft, who's got more tanks, who's got more artillery positions. Now, increasingly, it's disruptive technologies. It's who can launch the more missiles into Israel and how many missiles can Israel intercept them. And, mm-hmm. and if Israel can intercept these missiles, then what can I do? And will there be some sort of small strike out of Gaza that manages to take a squad of Israeli soldiers hostage, that kind of issues. So it's a different threat. I think when the Arab countries look at it, I think the thing that concerns them most is the fact that pretty much anybody can make an armed drone now. And Iran has helped people in Gaza and Lebanon build armed drones. And now in the last few years, Iran's strategy for Gaza and Lebanese Hezbollah has shifted from trying to ship them missiles to teaching them how to build missiles. And we've seen missile fabrication shops in Lebanon, in Beirut, uh, run by Hezbollah. So the Arab states look at this and say, well, we don't have the sophisticated civil defense. We don't have sophisticated missile defense that Israel has. But if this technology is being proliferated to Lebanese Hezbollah, it's probably going to proliferate to Iraqi militias, to the Houthis pretty soon. And I think that's what concerns them. We've got to talk about the third dimension you mentioned of inter-Arab arms races. Did the Gulf crisis, the siege of Qatar, did it play a role in the increase in military spending in that sort of inter-Arab arms race? Well, it certainly did for Qatar. Qatar has sort of woken up. I mean, I argued that the blockade of Qatar was their Stalingrad, you know, where you had a country that was kind of searching for a national identity and it was based on materialistic things like we're hosting the World Cup. You know, well, we have a mall here that's just as good as a mall in Dubai. But there was an inspirational thing. And, you know, I was there within a month of the blockade starting and you saw the huge portraits of Tamim Majid, you know, on, you know, eight stories tall on the side of buildings. It forged a national identity. And one of the things Qatar did was They had been viewed as in the second or third tier of defense powers that their defense infrastructure was seen as somewhat neglected. And they just... It got prioritized in the middle of all that crisis. It got prioritized in a way that has most defense analysts saying, okay, they bought a lot of equipment. It'll be interesting to see if they actually use any of this. So they bought three types of fighters. 
They're in line to buy THAAD, which is the premier ground-based air defense system. They're buying the early warning radar, which is what we have in the United States to defend us. You know, it's this huge four-story tall building that's on Cape Cod that can see from Greenland to Cuba. And quite frankly, should be the basis for a GCC-wide air and missile defense system. Mm -hmm. So they've bought a lot of stuff. The question is whether they can utilize it. Since we're talking about priorities, I wonder if there's a fourth dimension we can throw into. There was a time when there was a lot of focus in militarizing internally to face groups like Al-Qaeda and Daesh. What's happening with that trend? That's rising too, but it's harder for us to see because it's not hardware intensive. So internal policing, internal stability, if you have to use howitzers and tanks, you're in a bad place to begin with. This is really a function of having people on the ground. All right, a final one. Who's selling all of these weapon systems to the Middle East? Is it the usual suspects? US, China, Russia, France, you know, basically the five major... No, no, it's everybody. But US companies made up 25% of sales to the MENA region, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. By dollar value, the US will always be in the lead because our products are the most expensive and they're the most widely reported. Mm. But this is one of the problems is, I would argue, you need to look at lethality. Mm. So as people in the US Congress have called for sanctions on Saudi Arabia and the UAE because of the war in Yemen, because of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, um, you've seen parliaments of Canada, Germany, UK, other countries saying we need to stop exporting weapons to these countries. And so the countries listen to that and they say, you know what, we need to diversify. And some of them are even localizing production now, right? Like Edge in the yes. UAE and so on. So Yes, yes. So we've seen weapons produced in the region. Saudi Arabia under Vision 2030 has the target of producing 50% of their weapons in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. The UAE is doing a similar thing. All of these countries are aiming to have more domestic production. But the thing that's real interesting to me is the emergence of second tier providers, Turkey, has really prospered. They've provided armored vehicles to Qatar. Of course, the Bayraktar drone is the current hot, sexy weapon that everybody wants to have. All right. Well, this has been a great discussion. Thanks so much, David. Oh, it's really an honor. Thank you. Thank you. And let's say thanks to our listeners, too, for joining us. This episode was produced by Khaled Sultan and sound design by George Elwir. Our lead engagement producer is Ayal Malik, and our assistant engagement producer is Munira Dosari. Our big boss, of course, Omar Saleh, the executive producer, and I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. See you all next week. Hold up. 